All right, so today we're going to be continuing on in our series in the book of John uh, entitled The Word. And uh, we've been going over this for some time, and we're, now we're heading up towards Easter. And uh, actually, uh, last week we covered the triumphal entry. And, and so it's going to kind of throw off the timing a little bit, because the Sunday before Easter we're not going to do the triumphal entry. But uh, it gives us more time to focus on the passages in between, uh, which is a lot of Jesus' teaching on the night that he was betrayed and the other things that, that led up to that. Uh, today, we're going to continue in John chapter 12, uh, in verse 20. Uh, and so if you want to turn your Bibles there, or get your de devices ready to go there, we'll also have the words up on the screen uh, when we get to that. Um, but to begin with, I just wanted to take a second to like contemplate, uh, contemplate change. Uh, like change is, is one of those things in life that sometimes we like and sometimes we don't like. Um, one of the things I love right now is uh, the, the teasing of spring, you know, and I call it teasing because like a week and a half ago, it was like 60 degrees out, 70 degrees out. I'm riding a bike in shorts uh, down to the river. We're starting to see like little things like, like shooting up. And, and then on Friday night, as we were about to walk into uh, the community group at the Lynx house, uh, we're walking from our car and it's like, oh, it looks like rain. And all of a sudden it was just like snow. Uh, and, and here's winter again, uh, or second winter, whatever it is, compared to, to how you view it. Uh, so change can be good or bad, um, and often we pursue change for the good. Uh, and so if there's something in your life that, that you've wanted to change, um, kind of for the good, how did you go about it? Anybody? What are some steps that you took for change? Anybody? Read about it. Right? So how to go about change. Okay, so that's good. Take a step towards it, right? So not just information about how to do it, but, but actually taking a step, it's good. Prayer. prayer. Absolutely, prayer. And that should be first. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that on the first step. But So each of these things, what do they have in common? What is that? Preparing? Yeah. Action. Inten intention? Yeah, absolutely. Intention. All of these things are something that has to be done in order for change to, to really take place. Uh, and sometimes it takes a lot of effort on our part and, and sometimes not so much. On, on the way here, I was kind of contemplating this introduction and thinking about like spring. Like, like how much effort do we put forward to make sure that spring happens? We really don't have much effort whatsoever, right? What if it would have to be this plan for all of humanity across the world um, to plan for a certain day and a certain time in order to get all of the elephants and all the other animals and to say, okay, everybody, on this day, on this hour, we all need to walk south. So then as we started walking, the earth would rotate like underneath our feet and go back onto it. Like we don't have to put that effort into to spring. Some things are just done. Uh, and then our job is to, to adapt and to go with that change, right? As spring comes, we, we get rid of the winter clothes. We head into summer. Um, nobody's really like walking around in parkas at 70 degrees unless you're in Arizona. Like I've been there in February. It's 70 degrees out in Arizona. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt and, and there's people like in parkas and hoods and they're just kind of like shivering as they're walking outside. Uh, but it's one of those things that we don't necessarily have to make uh, effort in. Uh, but other things take consistent, intentional effort uh, 
um, that really comes across this sacrifice. If we want to change a long-time habit, how easy or hard is that? It's a hard thing to do, to change something that we've been used to doing over and over and over again, the same decisions that we used to make or habits that we have or the way that we eat or whatever else it is. It, it takes intentionally, uh, intentionality, effort, and, and truly sacrifice in order to give up what was in, in order to get something new. This morning in our passage, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the extent of effort put forth by Jesus for change, for transformation, uh, and what that means for us today. So again, in John chapter 12, verse 20, uh, let's pray before we read this. Uh, Father, we come before you, and we are uh, eternally grateful for your grace, for your mercy, for the sacrifice on the cross, for the newness of life that you died to give to us. Uh, and Father, as we look at this passage and, and the steps that you took and what that means for us, I pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us, that, that you would convict each one of us of the things that uh, either need to change uh, or the truths that we need to live out of. We thank you for your holy word that it's alive and active, and we trust its work in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 20. Uh, this is uh, kind of right after the triumphal entry. So he's heading into Jerusalem. He's doing it for a festival. The festival's still taking place. Uh, verse 20, it says, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. This is just kind of an interesting situation. Historically, uh, these would be people that weren't necessarily from Greece, but in context, they're saying they're not Jews. Uh, they're Gentiles. Uh, and so they want to talk to Jesus, uh, but they do it. It's kind of interesting. They go to Philip, um, who historically is kind of seen as uh, the one that lived closest um, to foreigners. And, and so maybe they knew that he was comfortable with foreigners, uh, even though they're in Jerusalem here. Uh, and so they approach him, and, and it's kind of that, that request of Jesus' entourage, if you will. Like, we'd like to talk with the man. <laughs> All right, well, let me go check to see if he's willing to, to talk to you kind of thing. Well, the passage uh, actually um, doesn't have any more interaction with these, these Greeks. Um, but in verse 22, it says, Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I, I, it's just this weird thing as I read this passage. You, you kind of have Philip uh, who's like, okay, i got to go ask Jesus. Uh, hey, Andrew, could you ask Jesus, if these guys could talk to him, could you do it for me? I don't necessarily want to bring it up to him. Uh, and then Andrew's like, no, come on, let's just go do this together. Uh, and so Jesus replies to them. Uh, and so again, this context, we don't know if the Greeks are, are there or if it's just Philip and Andrew. But he says, um, the hour has come for the Son of Man, which is Jesus, to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And so right here, he's, he's replying to this situation. He's saying that, that his crucifixion is about to come, but the, the passage doesn't mention it as a crucifixion. It's saying the time he's about to be glorified. The, the time that, that he's about to, to be lifted up and, and the connection that is inspired by the Holy Spirit 
is that it is glorious, that it is something that is glorified, which is opposite compared to an earthly mindset. Our mindset is death and destruction is bad. This is a low point. Even the disciples, when they, when they come to this, where Jesus is arrested, they see it as a low point. Peter pulls out a sword to try and protect it from happening. Jesus dies on the cross, and, and the disciples scatter. The apostles scatter until Jesus comes back and gathers them again. They see this as a low point, like, oh, darkness has really kind of defeated and overcome the Messiah. But what Jesus is saying here to them, my time has come to be glorified. This moment is the most pivotal moment in all of human history where Jesus is lifted up as the Savior of the world and accomplishes something that nobody else could accomplish. It is is glorious in this where he provides atonement for sins and the way of salvation for all mankind. And it's this concept, he's saying, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. I don't know how many farmers we have. I don't see Jesse here this morning. So, uh, But I was thinking about this and, and something else that like pops into my mind uh, when it comes to spring is dandelions. Now, my wife and I have this ongoing argument whether it's a weed or if it's a beautiful flower, right? And, and I'm on the side because I'm the one that mows the lawn and takes care of everything. And with, with that, like, to me, it's a weed because I really don't like it when, when you have just a whole yard full of, like, empty stalks, like little brown sticks pointing up, right? But, but yet there's this thing that happens in the beginning of spring where you see the first dandelion. And it's just this pop of brilliant yellow and green. And you're like, spring is here. Life is here. And you get this one dandelion that's with this yellow head. And then it starts transferring into this puffy white ball, right? As it starts to die. Like, we still look at those puffy white balls as beautiful, like, we have whole art pictures, you know, designated. So here's, like, this puffy white ball, and somebody's blowing on it gently, and you can see the seeds start to, to go off, and we consider it beauty. But it's also death. Like, that flower has died. And yet what happens is, as the wind blows, or as my daughter in her beautiful in, uh, innocence grabs a bunch of them and just, like, blows it all over the yard... <laughs> Through that one flower dying, many seeds go out. And then you see yards covered in dandelions. All through death, right? And and so that's what Jesus is saying here, that, that, that unless he dies, he'll be alone. That, that heaven will just be filled with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the created angels. Not man and woman created in his image. Just the Father, Son, Holy Spirit created angels. And other that alone. But, but yet what he says here 
Uh, in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul's writing this. Um, it says, those he foreknew, or God, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's this acknowledgement that, that through Christ's death, which we would consider a low point typically when we look at death, but, but unless he dies, uh, he's not glorified. And without that glorification, we're not considered to be brothers and sisters of Christ. We don't have that heavenly relationship. We don't have salvation. We don't have forgiveness of sins. But it's all through that death that, that many now, when we look over the course of the last 2,000 years, and it started with Jesus and 12 apostles. A handful of people in the upper room. Jesus dies. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches on Pentecost 33 CE. The Holy Spirit falls. And 3,000 that day are added to the family of Christ. Just 3,000. And, and then we go over the course of history, the last 2,000 years, and now we have millions upon millions of brothers and sisters in Christ some are waiting for us in heaven and some we're watching each other as we're here today or around the world. All of that because one seed fell to the ground and died in order to produce much fruit. Romans chapter 5 puts it this way. Since by the one man's trespass, and this would be Adam, through his sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those uh, who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For though through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Again, saying without Jesus doing this, we'd all be remaining in sin. We'd all be remaining in darkness. Jesus' death on the cross pays that penalty that that Adam initially committed. The debt that he owed, that he passed on generationally to us. The debt that we owed that we could never pay back. Jesus did for us. So that through his death, through this glorification on the cross, we might be made righteous through the blood of Christ. And over hundreds of years, Again, we get this idea of where we stand here today. Uh, we have a church here. There's churches surrounding us. Our brothers and sisters in Janesville are meeting. But if we look ahead into the future, by going into the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse at the end of time what the result of this is. Again, Jesus Christ coming down to earth to offer his life as a sacrifice results in what we see here in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I just envision that for a second. What's the largest gathering that, that you've ever been to? You know, sometimes it's going to be a stadium. Something like that. Like, like I think of the baseball games that I've been to, uh, Brewers Stadium, and you kind of look out and, and there's just seats all around. And, and you look out and it's just a kaleidoscope of different colors. Well, blue and whatever the other team is, but, <laughs> but a kaleidoscope of different people, right? 
from, from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages. And, and it's kind of hard to distinguish that. And, and if I try to sit there through the game and, and go, all right, one, two, three, four, five hundred, six. Oh, home run! One, two, three. Like, we, I would never be able to count the number. And, and yet what happens inevitably in any baseball game or any game that you go to, how many in attendance today, A, B, or C? 30,000 people in attendance watching this game, which blows my mind because I grew up in Marshfield, Wisconsin, which is about 18 to 20,000 people. It's rural. Uh, people brought their dates to prom in tractors. And so, like, for me to sit there and think my whole town would fit in this stadium is just kind of like an abstract, mind-blowing concept to me. But what this is saying is that he is looking, there's a vast multitude, every tribe, nation, people, language, no one could number. There, there's no attendance taking and scanning the tickets and clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking and saying, okay, this is the number that we have. But, but it's going to be so vast of our brothers and sisters from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Uh, we will be in heaven at the throne room of Jesus, and we'll have a brother and sister from South America and Fiji and Timbuktu, wherever that is, but from all over the place, standing before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes, in verse 9, with palm branches in their hands. We just talked about the picture of this, the shadow of this last week where Jesus was entering Jerusalem and people were sitting there saying, Hosanna. That, that's just a foreshadowing of what we get to do in white robes. All sin, all death is gone with palm branches saying, Hosanna, we're here. The kingdom is here. Death is no more. Sin is no more. They cried out in a loud voice in verse 10, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God. Again, I think you kind of get a sense of this at ball games where everybody starts singing Roll Out the Barrels at the same time. You know, like, like it's just like this din otherwise of conversation, but that seventh inning stretch and you get some words up on the screen and you get 30,000 people like singing the same thing. It's, it's powerful. Or if you've been to a, a conference, uh, I've gone to some pastor conferences where there's like 3,000 pastors there and, and just to like hear 3,000 men like all singing the same words, like there's times when I just stop singing honestly and listen because it's like, whoa. Now imagine a group beyond number gathering together. Humanity. There's no, there's no differences. There's no conflicts. There is no Russia versus America versus Ukraine versus China versus Cuba versus Korea versus whatever. But we're all there together, absolutely unified by the blood of Christ as brothers and sisters. There is no more nations anymore. We are all in the kingdom of heaven. And in that, in one voice, with all of the angels at the same time, like this is going to be like the coolest worship time ever. <laughs> right? 
Like, like we come here, and, and it's hard sometimes to even worship because we're thinking about, you know, oh, I didn't have enough breakfast, and my stomach's a little bit hungry, or, or I've got this other problem going on, and Lord, I really need your help in order to have wisdom and how to deal with this situation, or, you know, my daughter is room is messy and I got to have her do that, our little checklists. And, and we come here and we put the words on the screen and, and we do our best to kind of push that stuff aside in order to worship. But on that day, we're going to worship without any distraction. On that day, we, we don't sit here in this room which is beautiful with one another and, and we're worshiping to God unseen, but on that day, the Lamb is on the throne. And we lift up our voices in His very presence, singing as one these words. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and with the elders, the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then within this vision that John is having, one of the elders asked him, Who are these, white peop these people in white robes? Not white people, because there's every nation, multitude, tribe, people, and tongue. But who are these people in white robes? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They no longer hunger. They no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And it's just this beautiful result of Jesus dying. Or rather, Him being glorified on the cross. That seed falling to the ground, in a sense, so that much fruit could be born. One dying for many. And this is what he did for us. This is why we come and we celebrate Easter and this whole season. We, we recognize his death, the cost that was paid to free us from sin and death. And then the life that it gives us, the hope that it gives us. But the passage in John that we're looking at this morning doesn't stop there. John chapter 12, back there in verse 24, again he says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be, uh, also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so Jesus is saying this. It's a declaration of what's to come in a matter of days, that, that he must die in order to bear fruit, in order to bring salvation. But he doesn't just sit there and say, well, this is what I'm doing. But then instructs them by saying, 
the one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life will keep it for eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is what I'm doing. You have to follow. I'm dying in order to produce fruit. You have to also. There's reason and purpose in your life that I am giving to you. And it's to imitate me. And so it's a call to follow at the same time. We see that salvation itself comes through dying. Romans chapter 6 says, We were buried with him by baptism into death uh, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. So if we died with Christ, we believe that we live with him because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time, but his life he lives to God. So you too. So again, here's the example set by Christ. His death conquered sin. So you too, in following this, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. Jesus is saying, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it's not going to bear fruit. One facet of that is his death on the cross, resulting in many coming to salvation. The other facet of it is, unless we die to ourselves, unless we die to sin, we're alone. If our sins are not forgiven... If we don't die to our sins, we end up in eternity separated from God. But if we die to ourselves, if our seed of this earthly life we willingly sacrifice, sit down, and allow to die, then the new life that we're given through Christ will produce much fruit. We have to die for salvation. We have to die to ourselves, die to our desires, die to wanting to be in control, die to wanting to do things our own way, die to wanting to be in control, and rise to a life of submission to God and the Holy Spirit. And what another is, he's gathered us to be in the church. This then produces fruit as we put to death these very things. This new life itself is about sacrifice and producing fruit. Galatians 5 says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you'll certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh, which is, represents sin, desires what's against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. They're opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Again, fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the life of a Christian walking with God comes through sacrifice and dying to our selfish desires. 
It comes through laying aside our preferences, the way that we want our life to go, the comforts that we would feel better having, and saying, I'm setting that aside in order to submit to and follow God and trust Him for my provision, to trust Him for guidance, to trust Him for His wisdom and however He wants the history of this world to take place. I'm not in control. He is. It's humbling. And what is humbling ourselves? It's killing our pride. It's sacrificing it. It's allowing it to die so that there might be fruit in our life as we follow after Christ. This fruit that results through the Holy Spirit, this fruit of a changed life, being born of the Spirit, is strange to this world. It does not make sense to people of the world. Sometimes it may not make sense to us. But if we hold on to the old life, if we do not fully allow it to die, the fruit that our lives produce then will be less effective because we have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. If we start pursuing both things, we find ourselves in absolute turbulence in so many different areas of our life. But if we allow that to die and fully commit, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, but it's on his path according to his will. Not our will be done, but his. The very words that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, as he's sweating drops of blood, not my will be done. If it's possible, let this cop pass from me, but not my will be done. I'm willing to die this death. I'm willing to allow this sacrifice to happen so that fruit comes. Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, you have to go through the same thing. We have to die to ourselves. We have to continually say, not my will, but yours, and to follow that guidance. This life of sacrifice, as we pursue this and set aside ourselves, uh, produces eternal fruit. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as for what you are so, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat uh, or another grain. So, so in other words, um, what it's saying is, here and now, as we walk this earth, this is my body. You're sitting in your body, right? And what you're sowing is what we have. Some of us have, we all have different things than each other, right? Some of us wake up in the morning and my knee hurts. Maybe it's your back. Maybe you don't have anything that's bothering you. I'm jealous. <laughs> But each one of us has problems with our bodies. I've needed glasses since the third grade, right? Uh, each one of us uh, have different resources. And we went through this whole thing as, as stewards of God that he's given us to be stewards, to be faithful with what he's given us as stewards. We're all given different allotments to be faithful with. Some of us own businesses, some of us don't. Some of us have jobs, some don't. Some stay-at-home moms, some are students, some are children, some are grandparents, some are retired. Like, like there's this whole spectrum of what each one of us are stewards of. Now, do you think what you're a steward of is what you're going to get in heaven? I sure hope not, because I don't want my knee to hurt for 10,000 million years. And so what he's saying is what we're sowing is not what fully comes back to us, right? 
it's kind of different in that sense from the dandelion, right? The dandelion sows a seed and more dandelions pop up. What he's saying here is you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. This whole life that Jesus died to give us is represented by death and fruit. And if we're faithful to walk out the life that God has given to us as faithful stewards, we are sowing for fruit that will be reaped in heaven. This whole illustrations, we were talking about it on, on Friday night. Dale, remember where the passage was with the, the foundation and you build on top of it? 1 Corinthians 3-ish. We'll, we'll go with that. But the whole thing is the foundation is salvation through Jesus Christ, and what we build on top of that will either last into eternity or it's going to be burned up when Jesus comes back, and we're still saved, but we get through as though one through the fire. This life is about dying to ourselves and producing fruit in eternity and in the kingdom. And we don't know when that end will be. We don't. Scripture tells us to be, to be ready as though a thief in the night. Uh, it says that people are going to go on eating and drinking and getting married like they did in the days of the flood. One thing Scripture always says is to be ready. No matter what. And so that's really the question for us in this is are we allowing ourselves to die so that we walk a life of producing fruit? And if we do that, then we're ready. God takes care of the rest. All he asks is that we walk with him. And if we're walking with him, however he comes, however our life ends, whether it's an accident as we leave this building or somebody in the world today pushes a nuclear weapon and everything's vaporized, if we're walking with him, we're ready. That's really what it comes down to. And so Jesus died this death in order to produce much fruit. As we die to ourselves and we set aside... A, our earthly desires, as we die to sin, he promises that the fruit in Galatians 5 grows within us. And as we share that, that multiplies. The result of that is many of us sitting before the throne, and the result of that is these seeds, these husks of our earthly bodies aren't anything in comparison in what he has for us as we walk in faithfulness. We can live the eternal life now if we're in Christ. Because he's the one producing the fruit in our lives. Uh, at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, and so if you want to take a second and get the elements ready. In this message, it's talking about the death of Christ resulting in much fruit. And as we partake of this this morning, this is a tangible reminder of his death. 
In fact, what sits before us. Some wheat had to die (laughs) in order to get mixed together for the bread that we have before us. There was fruit on the vine in a grape that was squished (laughs) and died for it to be in the cup before us. And then that in itself (laughs) represents the seed of Jesus dying on the cross to produce the fruit of us being here. And then as we die to ourselves, we do produce fruit in the world around us. And, And this is the great and glorious plan that was accomplished at the cross leading up to the moment that we're here today and the moment when we get to gather with every tribe, nation, and tongue and all of the angels worshiping our God on the throne. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this morning we also proclaim that through his death we're harvesting fruit, both within ourselves and more souls into the kingdom through his death as well. Father, we come before you thankful for this passage, thankful for this tangible reminder of the price that you paid for us for your death that resulted in much fruit. Uh, Lord, I pray um, that as we reflect upon that this week, this season of Easter, where we look at your death, that we don't see it as a low point, but rather the glorification of you. That through you being lifted up, through um, a humbling death as though you were a criminal, all of that was to accomplish this death that produces fruit. And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would convict us that we are to follow you in that. We may not walk to a cross, but we are to die in order to produce fruit. We are to die to our desires, die to control, die to... Um, things of this world in order to seek first the kingdom and to produce fruit for you. Now, Lord, we also acknowledge that we can't do that in of our own strength. But we acknowledge that this is what you have established in all of eternity, that as we walk in you, as we are uh, spliced into the vine in John 15, that we produce much fruit. And so, Lord, I just pray that you help us that you would convict us of the areas that we are distracted, that we continue to have one foot into the world that is limiting the ability for us to be uh, producing fruit in this world, and that you would help us to be ready by simply being in you and with you and following your leading and direction and guidance. We pray this for Jesus' name. Amen.